Hey everyone, it's Maurice. Before we start the show, I want to thank you all for listening and for your support, especially our Patreon members. If you're not a member of our Patreon page yet, check it out at patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you get an ad-free version of this episode. You get access to behind-the-scenes clips and videos, information on upcoming articles and reviews, and so much more. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path. All right, let's get on with the show. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. We talk about inspiration a lot here on Revision Path. So I wanted to ask Becca Hare, a UX researcher at Facebook, what inspires her? Not to to give a cliche, but people. I think that's why I do what I do as a design researcher. My whole job is just to go out into the world and be inspired by people and bring those inspirations back to influence what we built here. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, General Design Co. in Washington, D.C. is looking for a graphic designer. And Glitch is looking for the following positions. A community health engineer, a developer advocate, and a DevOps engineer. These positions are for their New York City office, but remote candidates are welcome to apply. If you're looking to diversify your design or dev teams, post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting-edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, apps that help advance important causes, I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, with new ones popping up every day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. By the way, did you check out their new rebranding with the the bold yellow and the graphic illustrations and the new typefaces? I mean, it's pretty dope. But what's even better about MailChimp is that they make innovative and beautiful products that serve millions of customers around the world. And they give you the tools and resources that you need to find your people, grow your business, and make smarter choices. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. 
October is LGBTQ month on Revision Path, and this week's guest is UX researcher and designer Jordan Green in Seattle, Washington. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Jordan Green. I'm a designer and researcher out of Seattle, currently working for the University of Washington's My Peeps project. And before that, I worked for a variety of like public organizations, public good organizations, public sector organizations doing design and research. All right. I do want to get into kind of that past life that you've had as kind of an organizer or facilitator or researcher. Uh, but yeah. yeah, let's talk about first the My Peeps Project. What is that? The My Peeps Project is a nationwide study that is designed around a mobile health app for boys who like boys. So I say boys because they're 13 to 18. The literature calls them young men who have sex with men, like my public health research literature will call them young men who have sex with men, which gets a little weird when you're talking about like young, like black, Latino boys of color, say boys who like boys. And so it's a mobile health app that is a story-based narrative that uh, helps boys learn about HIV, safe sex. We are in the parts of it testing a variety of different factors to see if it's effective and mostly to see if it's effective and is it actually a great public health intervention. So, yeah. So I guess kind of what you're saying, it's sort of like a, like a story-based kind of a, a visual novel sort of app. Is that what it is? Yeah. Pretty much. I would say it's akin to a visual novel. I can't talk too much about the structure of of the app itself because mm-hmm. who knows, there could be like potential participants listening. And if that's the case, I don't want to ruin the, the experience or taint the data if they happen to listen to Revision Path and then go to my peeps. For the most part, it's a story-based structure. And I can say that part because um, as I've been recruiting and like researching some youth have said that like oh i thought it was like a grinder for young guys and you know that would be fine but i don't think that we can do that for a variety of different reasons so yeah it's a story-based app and the way my particular site approaches it is that we embed ourselves in community with queer youth and so i'm actually in like essentially in community with queer youth doing a variety of different activities and having them come test our app. I guess as much as you can discuss, what's been the outcome so far? Well, the research isn't in yet. I was able to do some user interviews and some original testing of the app in the pilot phase of the study. And so I originally took this job because I wanted to see what doing UX research in an academic standpoint, academic field is like. And there's a lot of, at this particular study, there's a lot of other factors and variables that we're looking at that don't impact UX and don't impact the design of the app. And so I came on, we did the thing, and then they were like, okay, we're done with the UX phase. Uh, Now we're going to just test And so (laughs) there's been a lot of feedback that I've gotten from users that doesn't impact the app right now because we're quote unquote done with the UX phase. And so it's been cool sort of watching some things happen like 
the organization that they used and contracted with to do most of the development of the app, like was using eye tracking software and doing some of the cooler stuff like that. I have some of our other sites and now they're done with that and it costs too much money to go back and do any changes to the app. So that's been, at least in my experience, I know that not all UX in academia is like that, like this, but that's been my experience of doing UX in academia is just like, oh, you have a phase where you do UX and then it's done. And it's kind of like, I didn't think I would ever encounter that, but yeah, that's where we're at right now. So it's it's been an interesting time for me, I think. Like being embedded in community and doing other design projects where we're very responsive to community folks and then going to like my full-time job where they're like, yeah, we hear that this is an issue, but there's nothing we can do now because the way that we wrote the grant, there was a phase for UX and it's done. And now we have to do these other pieces that are more important or than doing the design throughout the grant itself or throughout the study itself. It sounds like it's not as flexible because you have to kind of adhere to these particular like project phases. Yeah. I mean, I think the, in, you know, I don't want to speak too much on it, like in a broad sense, but the way that I've seen it work at least. So my position is and the through the school of the University of Washington School of Social Work. And the University of Washington actually has a human-centered design and engineering program and also has a like human-centered design school. And so I want to be a little bit clear around the fact that like there may be other UX research that's going on in across the school because it's a big school that doesn't look like my design phase or it doesn't look like my current study. But the way that the, the PIs wrote the grant was that you we did user interviews and then the the design team built the app. And I wasn't there for the building of the app. And then you do more user interviews and more pilot testing, which I would consider just like, you know, your first phase of testing. And then once you did all of that testing, you now move into like the random control trial because it's a efficacy test. And so there's not a lot of flexibility in what can be changed on the app, um, how the app can be changed, how things could be moved around, how much of responsiveness it can be toward user needs, unless Mm -hmm. it has something to do particularly with the function of the app. So like if the app is not working, then we'll, we'll go back in and change something. But for the most part, there hasn't been any changes, major changes in the design of the app or major changes in the way that the app functions online. Well, now that you've kind of had this experience with doing UX in this kind of academics setting, is this something that you would want to continue? Would you want to do another project like this? I not exactly like this, no, but I think I would be open to like if the school of human centered design or like the HCDE department or another place was like, Hey, we're doing a different kind of UX research. Would you be interested? I would be like, heck yeah. Like I want to see sort of like pure UX design. Like I think what's really cool right now is that people are getting woke. I think to how you 
UX design is very helpful for mm-hmm. doing things like apps and things of that nature, uh, web-based projects, even sometimes things like digital storytelling. So people are like, oh, yeah, we totally need a UX designer. But then they don't know what to do with that UX designer when they get them. Or they like, I feel like it was where the tech industry was, like academia is always a little bit behind. So I feel like it's where the tech industry was like in the early 2000s around UX designers, where they were like, UX is really hot right now. Let's just say we have a UX designer and then they get the UX designer and don't know how to use them and don't know how to like optimally use them Yeah. outside of the school HCDE. Yeah, I would definitely want to work in a place that knew how to use UX designers and knew how to integrate them into studies. That would be really cool to see. But right now, I wouldn't do another place where they're like, we're done with our UX phase. And I didn't know that's how they would approach it at the time, you know, uh, when I accepted the job. So I'm just like, oh, this is really interesting to see, like, what other factors and, like, determine how you do UX at a at an institution like this and how you do it in a study that is also supposed to have social impact. Right. So, yeah. And yeah, just to be clear, you don't want to make it sound like you're bashing like the current project that you're on, but you just mean like in terms of the type of UX that you want to do for the project, you'd rather it be a more integral part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not bashing the project at all. It was a great project. I like really love a lot of what it's doing and what it's trying to do, but it's definitely like I kind of came into this work from working in the community and like doing like f- contracting work where UX was just seen as something that, and I guess I should say research around like human centered research and design and the design itself was kind of seen as supplemental or sort of superfluous on top everything else. And so I was contacted about this particular position I was really excited to see, to get in there and see how those things work together. Like, how are people actually incorporating UX into an academic or a longitudinal study or random control trial? And the answer I got back has been like, you know, you do your UX and then you're done and then you do all these other things, which is not, I think, I don't think it's an ideal process, but... You know, that just could be the hat that I'm wearing. Now, we've had a lot of UX designers here on Revision Path, and this tends to be a question that I ask of of most of them, is that why do you think UX is becoming so popular right now? Well, there's a variety of reasons. One, I think there's been a lot of really great work done by sort of the the UX forefathers like Alan Cooper and Steve Portugal and like even folks that I'm not saying off the top of my head who have very much advocated for having UX be part of either your sprint or your, your process. And so, and we have seen like the return on investment on it, I think. So for me, I've seen people say, Oh my God, like this AB testing improved our conversion rate by like 22%. And now we need people who know how to do that and we need to like see what else we can optimize on our website. And so it's, I think a lot of big companies recognize that. And I think there was a trickle down effect of smaller companies who were watching the bigger companies do things. I think UX is hot in like academia right now is because it's 
it's I would say it's finally starting to gain traction and a foothold and being seen as a process, like a design process being used for social good and social impact. And so academia is really interested in seeing like how can you use UX? And also there's money in it. Like people are <laughs> like really like you know people are paying top dollar to like have a quote unquote UX designer or have and that like those market forces things that can't be ignored. And so I think that I think folks are seeing like oh folks are actually paying money to have these quote-unquote designers, not to say that UX designers aren't designers, but I think a lot of people before, and this is what I still encounter a little bit, it's like, so you're a graphic designer? And I'm like, no, I do much more than mm-hmm. just the visuals and the UI. And so I think a lot of people are like, yeah, we definitely need this because it'll improve money. Like, it'll help us make money, and if we put our money here, we'll get a good return on investment. And so folks are paying attention to that. Yeah. So between the My Peeps project and then, you know, your your day job, which you didn't really talk about, but what is a typical day like for you? Like when you're getting into the office, what are you doing? So that's my day job. The My Peeps project oh. is my, my day job. And oh, okay. So, okay. Sort of three things I'm working on right now that are in the pipe. One, the research coordinator for My Peeps, the Seattle site. The other thing is that I actually lead the research for a community-based consortium, I think would be the clearest way of saying that, of folks who are doing storytelling and story gathering in in the Portland queer people of color communities here. I help out with that. And then I'm also part of the AIGA Changemaker series here in Seattle. And so we're actually, so, and that's the third thing I'm doing on a volunteer basis. And my days tend to look like I wake up, I go to work, I check RedCap, which is a, uh, it's kind of like Qualtrics, but it's web-based. And we, I look through the data there, uh, find people who are, who are interested in participating in our study. And I get in contact with them, I research with them. If they qualify for the study, I induct them into the study. Mm-hmm. A lot of my days have been spent like creating reach materials and sort of like materials to attract youth to the study because apparently it's really hard to find 13 to 18 boys who like boys in the Seattle metro area. We didn't think that that would be an issue because everybody's so open and free here. But so that I spend a lot of my days finding where the kids hang out. That sounds weird. (laughs) And, And going to them and being like, can I pay you money to test this app, which is pretty fun. And then after work, I'm either doing two things. One, I'm the Alphabet Alliance of Color, which is the consortium I mentioned earlier, is in the process of doing a, like, I've been driving the process for branding there. And so I've been working with a design firm to create the branding assets for the Alphabet Alliance of Color. And I've also been researching how to build for that project, how to build an archive, because we want to have stories of queer people of color, particularly black and brown people of queer identity. We want to house their stories online in an accessible way. And so a lot of my work right now has been with the Alphabet Alliance of Color has been building up a research practice within the consortium itself. 
and then designing, like laying out the research and designing how that research works or functions in community, designing the spaces in which we collect research and also just following up with like, I follow up with the designers on whose design, our visual designers on who's designing a brand. I'm looking at our web designers as they're building the website. I'm working with archivists and content strategists to figure out the best way to start laying out these stories that we're collecting uh, with the goal of launching at least a small website at the beginning of the year that showcases some of those stories. So that's the process I do sort of after work most days. And then I'm just beginning to wrap up the AIGA Changemaker series with my team. And so I was leading the research gathering there. So I was interviewing a lot of the re- uh, internal stakeholders. For that project, we're building a brand for a small nonprofit, a small but strong and long-lived nonprofit in the uh, Seattle area called Powerful Voices, which is really cool. And so we've been helping sort of synthesize all the data we did. I did a design audit of all of their work before and looked at it. And then we interviewed a bunch of internal stakeholders to figure out what actually is the brand and the feeling around Powerful Voices And then I got called away on assignment for three weeks in the middle of that, like, because it's a volunteer gig. And my main gig was like, we need you to go someplace and do some work Mm -hmm. out in the field. And so I handed off all of the research to the rest of the team. And they conducted a lot of the research uh, while I was gone for three weeks. And that was that was wild. Uh, (laughs) And so we did that. Uh, My the research team did a great job, but it was just wild to be like last minute called away. Um, in the middle of a project. And so now I've been synthesizing that data and collecting the last bits of it. And that's going to inform our brand book and the product that we hand off to the client at the end of the AIDA Changemaker series, which is coming up in September. Like it's coming up at the end of September. So yeah, (laughs) after this, actually, I'm going to get off the phone and interview, do some more like stakeholder interviews. And yeah, it'll be pretty fun. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I think I think that there has always been designers for good, for the most part. And I think that oftentimes, but I think recently people have been like, you know, we're using a lot of these design tools to like make companies money, but how are we truly improving people's lives? And so I really have enjoyed people who, designers in particular, who have taken a step back and have said, like, how can I use this? How can I use the tools that I learned in school to help improve people's lives in a variety of different ways? I think that there has been... So I think um, part of the... Like, a lot of the designers and those kind of folks that I know who have been designed for good for a long time have been in the public sector. And I think there's a lot of good that can be done in civic tech. But as someone who switched careers from the public sector to design, I have seen personally firsthand how folks uh, don't really know, didn't really understand how design impacted their work. They're like, I'm trying to save people from dying or trying to get people resources. And you want me to take a step back and look at like how the service is designed 
quote unquote, like, I don't have time to think about that or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and so I think they're there. I think again, money has uh, has shown, and really a lot of a lot of work done by the Obama administration showed, like courting tech folks into the public sector, shown the what could really be done if you apply di- design thinking to the systems that we already have in place. And so that's mostly what I start thinking about. I, I think about the history and I think about sort of the people who had already been doing the design work and not necessarily calling themselves designers. And I also think about like how we're in this moment in time where design thinking is really hot right now, in part because of organizations like IDEO and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and design thinking for good and design thinking that impacts people outside of like technology has become really hot right now and i'm i'm loving it because that's for me personally like that's the the intersection that i've always wanted to sit at and i think that a lot of people think of art for social change but they haven't to think haven't thought about design for social change and thinking more broadly about how we create spaces and create services that are human-centered and friendly and in instead of sort of bureaucratic and work for the people giving the services, but not necessarily the people receiving them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm just really excited to see designers put their thinking caps on and help with that. And that's, that's where I want to live in the, is the, in the space of like, not necessarily just service design, but designing, designing like public good yeah. and public Things that benefit the public, essentially. I feel like that's starting to increase now, given this current administration. I hate to get too political about it, but I have <laughs> seen. But no, I, I have seen that. Like, like given what's going on right now, I mean, we don't even really have like a chief technical officer of the country under this administration right now. We yeah. may by the time this airs, but as of now, we don't. So <laughs> you, you start to see, you know, with the past administration, certainly design and design for good and things of that nature kind of had a more active and prevalent role because we saw how it did help with, you know, not just with government type functions, but just civic functions as well. And now, now it's not. So, (laughs) so I think designers maybe are are hopefully starting to kind of, I don't want to say pick up the slack. That sounds, that's not the best way to put it, but it it feels that way. Like we're starting to see a bit of an increase in, or at least maybe an increased awareness of it. Yeah. You know, I think this is a great segue into XOXO because, you oh, know, oh, yeah. yes. You know, I found out about XOXO like two years ago during the last year after it had happened, right? And I was just like, damn, that was a good festival. <laughs> I wish I had gone. I wish I could have gone or knew about it. And then, you know, I had, you know, made my peace with it. And then this year they came back and I was just like, wow, let me apply for a ticket. Let me see if I get it. And I got in and I went. And, you know, the opening plenary, they were like, you know, after the 2016 election, we felt like it was really important to have this space. Yeah. And I think that the Andes are two white, cis, I think straight, able-bodied folks. And I think that there was, like, without getting too political, I think that there was a huge wake-up call for folks who did not experience much oppression in their lives. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they don't experience oppression in some way or the other, but like 
there's a very big difference as like for me as a man there's a very big difference of the way i move through the world than women or folks that do not get read as men and so like i think a lot of people started to wake up to the fact that like oh crap we're in it we're in this place that nobody thought america could get to (laughs) and I think a lot of designers are like, how do I use my skills to make sure that we don't go to the bad place even more so than we already are at? Like, how do we how do we as designers, how do we as technologists, how do we as artists stem the tide of bad things? Whatever words you want to use to call it. And I just want to say, you know, for people that are listening that might not know what XOXO is, it's this sort of experimental like tech slash culture festival that takes place or it has taken place annually in Portland since what 2011 or something like that 2010 2011 mm-hmm. and it's a a multi-day event there's a conference part they usually have like an arcade they have you know other types of things that you can do it's less of a of a conference where you're i guess going to walk away with um i don't know it's not really a tech conference or a design conference it's right. more like yeah. a like a creativity and inspiration conference, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's definitely not like a technical conference at all, right? Yeah. You're not going to walk in there and learn how... I mean, you may. I mean, you might learn how somebody did something, but it's more so like, I don't know. It's inspirational, right? Yeah. And people... like. Part of me wants to be like, it's like Burning Man for techies that don't want to go to the oh, desert. Oh, God, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's why I was like, I don't want to say that. But it does occupy this sort of same space of where people go. I feel like this is a family reunion and I just married into the family, mm-hmm. you know, because I was just like watching people see friends that they hadn't seen in years. This was me too. And like walk up and hug them and like talk to them and all that stuff. Um, yeah, you almost tackled me when I met you. I was so excited to meet you in person. I have no idea. Like, and I think I did that to a couple of people, so my bad. <laughs> I got to meet you. I'll get to this in a little bit. But like, I got to meet you, Kat Small, Jordan Obi, Amelie Lamont, Joel Calafia. Just like people I have been, you know, I, like, I'm out here kind of a lot in, like, in Seattle like by myself a lot of the time and like the people that I've followed online have been designers that have really been inspiring. And I got to meet a good selection of them over the weekend. And like, I just had to contain my excitement. because I was like, you have no idea what your work has meant to me (laughs) out here by myself. Uh, So like even folks, local folks like Karanda were there. And so it was just like really nice to go and but yeah, I think XOXO came back explicitly because they were like, Trump is here, y'all, and the world may be getting on fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not already. Like for a lot of folks, we've just been like the world been on fire. But yeah. I think designers, I mean, I think the stereotype of designers of uh, being like white men who are straight, uh, with top buns sometimes are it's kind of true like they're somewhat especially tech designers they're somewhat affluent and so i think a lot of the world's problems may not get to them as quickly as uh, someone like me who's like a black fat queer person working in community health or community work or at this point social work as a designer like i'm i'm seeing 
sort of the impacts of a variety of different systems of oppression on a regular basis, if not personally, then sort of secondhand or thirdhand, uh, watching it impact the people that I serve. And so I think the United States, and particularly the privileged, more privileged classes of the United States, are starting to wake up to that. And so when you live in, like, you suddenly, I've seen this happen with a lot of my friends who are designers who work in more cloistered tech spaces. Like they just work for their company. They go home, they may donate to a cause, but they don't actually engage with the cause besides monetarily donating. What can I do? How can I get involved? How can I create a better world, a world that I want to see? And XOXO uh, definitely brought a lot of those people to the table to listen to, for the most part, creators of color who have been doing that work for quite some time and creating spaces for themselves online, outside of the box, whatever box, for quite some time. So I think there, that there, there are a lot of designers who, who are just starting to get woke to social change for good and things like that because it's because there's a huge need for it. And I think, you know, the Obama administration showed it was possible to Cause like, yeah, it's just wild. Just like how we didn't have a technology chief technology officer of the, of the United States for until his, to his administration that we didn't have things like 18F or the U S digital services until his administration, like how much work, the Obama administration did in integrating sort of this, these tech principles into government. And I don't know if anybody listening has ever worked in government tech, but we were (laughs) (laughs) people are always like, you know, and I say this lovingly, like lovingly as someone who come like got their start there and can't Mm -hmm. come there and wants to still exist in that, that space. There were a lot of, like, again, like, there are so many priorities at the governmental level that folks, like, people, administrators, like, there's a lot of administrators that don't even know how the technology works. And that's not just, you know, that's not just in in the government. That's across sectors that are human services, I think, yeah. or public goods. They were just like, I don't know how this app works. Just make it work. But they weren't really... Like they didn't have the expertise or the skills. And then, you know, I was listening to uh, something where a designer was like, I would love to be like an academic researcher, but I love money. So I'm going to just stay in my lane over here at this company that's paying me gobs of money to do that. And that's a real thing. Right. And like finding designers that are like, I love money a little bit less than most of my ilk. And so I can take the hit and like, take a $30,000 a year pay cut to like make sure that our public goods are still working or even designers that are like, I've never made that kind of money. And so I'm going to go over here and make sure that our public sector is working efficiently. I think a lot of designers are starting to wake up to that in, uh, especially in the Trump administration where they're like, I don't want this to be bad. So I'm going to try to make sure it's good as much as possible. Sorry, I thought that was rambling a little no, bit. No, no, I mean you well, I mean you touched on a lot of different points. I want to, you know, kind of bring it back to XOXO cuz I know when you and I talked before we recorded, 
we were both kind of saying that we had a lot to unpack about the event. Yeah. Um, the opening plenary part, and I, for the people that are listening, so what they do the opening night, they sort of give a little bit of explanation as to the event and the history of it. And for this particular one, they were coming off of a one-year hiatus. Hiatus, mm-hmm. I should say. Uh, they yeah. had been doing it for a while, then they stopped for a year, came back. And then they were sort of talking about because of that year of, of a hiatus, they felt like it was more important than ever to kind of, I guess, mm-hmm. get inspired and, and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think for people that, that were mostly there, XOXO is kind of this feel good, halcyon mm-hmm. sort of a, an experience where you can be like, okay, there's still some, some good in the world that's happening and that's going on. And I don't feel like I'm hopeless in the face of things that are happening in this regime. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> XOXO also has this very vibrant Slack community. And this mm-hmm. is made up of both past and current attendees. And there's a special channel that's there just for people of color. It's private. Mm-hmm. It's invite only. And mm-hmm. the experiences that I saw from POC attendees were mm-hmm. so wildly different mm-hmm. from non-POC attendees mm-hmm. that it made me feel like we were at two separate events. Yeah. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. I feel like that sort of a back channel is probably a prevalent part of most communities, whether it's whether they have a Slack community or not. Like we know we you see another yeah. black person across the room and y'all share that look. You know what that's about. But just in terms of like some of the things that some of the speakers were talking about some of the interactions that they had with other attendees, it was clear that maybe that this year's XOXO kind of felt more like a, uh, like a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Mm-hmm. Whereas other attendees have been used to the taste of the medicine all along. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't yeah. know if I, if I overextended that metaphor, please email me and let me know. <laughs> but, but, it, but that's what it, it's, that's kind of what it felt like, you know, and I yeah. had to kind of reckon that when I was thinking, you know, past on the event, cause this is my first time going. And I'm like, there were parts of it that I really enjoyed. I think the parts I enjoyed the most, honestly, was just being at the conference, just sitting yeah. down by myself, just kind of taking it all in, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had great conversations with people. Met great folks. A lot of the folks that you mentioned. I mean, I met people that I haven't seen. Actually, I've met people that I've never seen before, Mm -hmm. but we have known each other since like 2001 online. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, you're here and you exist in person, you know, like that sort of thing. So that felt good. But it's like, I don't know if all the, I mean, I think with any event like this, all the attendees are not going to get the same type of thing from it, but it very much was like, it was an empowerment conference. You you mm-hmm. go to get empowered. I mean, like there there were some code design kind of like sessions. Mm-hmm. We had like a code an art and code part yeah. where you know they showed what people were making with code. Like that kind of stuff was really nice to see. But like you're not walking away learning any new skills. You're yeah. you're really there to kind of you know just it's like summer camp almost. You're just there to yeah. kind of like see your friends again and hang out by the fire and. Or yeah. there was no fire, but you know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of a an experience. <laughs> yeah, hang out in the chill room. Yeah, you, I think summer camp, you know, it's funny that you describe it like summer camp because the assignment that I got sent on for three weeks for my nine to five job was being a counselor at a summer camp for queer oh, youth. Oh, that's right. You so I went from, huh? I sorry, I remember you told me that. Yeah, so I went from like summer camp to like tech summer camp, uh, <laughs> almost back to back. 
So that was wild. Anyway, your description is 100% correct. I actually, so the first two days I was at XOXO, I wasn't in the Slack at all because I had like, I didn't have time to catch up on all of the emails that got sent out. So I finally got into the Slack like the last two days. And it was, I think the, the first, like my, the contrast between my first two days and my last two days was definitely because of the Slack. There were parts that I was just like, that felt a little weird. I'm not sure if that felt a little weird to anyone else. And I would check the Slack and not just in the people of color channel, but other places that were, there were people being like, yeah, that felt a little weird. And like, let's go outside and talk about how that felt a little weird instead of like staying for the rest of the talk. And it was just like, it was clear, like in even post XOXO watching like, again, like watching these like white cis dudes be like, I felt like this conference, this conference was a little bit too woke for me. Like I felt a little Mm. bit. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that too. I saw, which was interesting because I I didn't really see that. I think referred during the conference. It was definitely after there were people that felt like it was quote unquote too woke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh That was yeah, weird. I felt, and it wasn't just like, let me be clear. It wasn't just white dudes, but it was definitely a lot of people that were like, I saw one person be like, I grew up as an assimilationist. So like, you know, you just deal with the dominant culture and you mm-hmm. try to assimilate to the dominant culture. And that's how my people survived. And like, this felt like everybody was trying to rebel against the dominant culture, which is as someone who grew up on like in radical leftist circles, wild to me that somebody went to XOXO and was like, these rebels over here are trying to just like rebel. Like, wow. Yeah, I, I feel like of any event, that's the one that's going to be the most open yeah. in that way. You know, I, I can understand that maybe you went to actually, no, I was going to say South by Southwest, but not even something like that because there's so many different viewpoints yeah. and things in the schedule there. But at an event like XOXO, like that's the goal. And it's in yeah. Portland. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's in Port- I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, like, it's in Portland. It, you know, the I think the Andes had a lot of help this year from people of color. And, like, the curated list of the people of color, like, Ijoma makes her, like, her book is talking, like, it's talking about race in this way of, like, I know that she said in her talk that she's not the white people listener, but whisperer, but like she makes her living talking to primarily white audiences or primarily audiences that are sort of like in the middle around race stuff about race. And so it was like for people of color who like the people of color experience that I saw and like was a part of, it felt to them very much like get your white friends. They're going to listen to stuff about race and people of color, (laughs) you know, and people of color. And like, I don't want to say have broad strokes, but there were a lot of people of color that were like, this is really basic for me. Like, this is my lived experience every day. And I don't like, I've tried explaining it and it, it doesn't make an impact. Like people are really obtuse, too obtuse to try to get it. And I was just like, for me as someone who is, done a lot of this work it was interesting to see like you know i think it's just the times we're living in like some folks are trying to get woke real quick because they're like how did we get here (laughs) right and And the rest of us are like we've been here (laughs) we've been here we've been here since the 80s we've been Uh here (laughs) or longer you know like come on 
Like, (laughs) we ain't new to this, you know? And so I think it was that, I think it was that double consciousness piece. Like, I feel like this is kind of like how black Twitter and like people of color Twitter is function, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, nah, this has been going on for a long time. And people are like, what? This is brand new information. Um, (laughs) And that's kind of how like the people of color black back channel felt. (laughs) They were like, Y'all, you see this talk about like how this white dude didn't want to get too political around his his like cartoon. I'm yeah. like, come on, son. It was really helpful to have that, but also like it definitely did color my experience of XOXO a little bit differently. Where like my first two days, I was just like, just kind of like blown away. I'm there and I'm like, oh my god, is that cat small? Yeah. Oh my God, is that Momo Pixel? You know, like, for me, like, I was like, the creator, I'm sitting right next to the creator, hair and right? I just want to hug you for, like, just doing that. Like, Amelie, the same thing. And then you, the same thing. And then after that, to be around a community of folks that were like, cool, now that you've been inducted, like, let's tell you what's actually really going on. Like, like let's help you. <laughs> Let's help you like navigate this situation. Like for me as a as a new kid, like as a new jack, they're yeah. like, look at this, look at how this is playing out. You know, I think that was helpful because for me, it's so easy to get just blinded by the shiny that is XOXO, right? Because mm-hmm. it's an exclusive conference too. Like that's the thing. Like I had hella friends be like, oh, I want to try to go to that next year, and I was like, if you get a ticket, good luck. You know what I mean? Like yeah. good luck. Like, like, I, like I was telling you, I, I had applied for the lottery every year right. and had not gotten in. It wasn't until my employer was doing something there that I was able to go. Right. Yeah. I mean, I applied. I felt very, very lucky that I applied, that I got a ticket. And it was really, really helpful to be able to go and experience it. But yeah, now that I was in, like, it was just like, <laughs> again, if we're using the family reunion metaphor and like i just married into the family there were definitely some cousins that pulled me aside and be like that <laughs> uncle gets drunk yo and he <laughs> so you know look out a little bit like he he likes you a little bit right now but he gonna get drunk and get racist and when that happened come over here we're gonna be in the back and that that happened like i didn't have any sort of like direct racism things but like XOXO is definitely like a big family reunion, but like with any family you got, with any family tree, there's branches that you wish you could prune. <laughs> right? Yeah. So. I had a few like, like tiny racial microaggressions, mostly around people saying that I was very articulate. Oh my uh, God. Like stuff like that. Got misgendered a few times, which was interesting. <laughs> uh, I was like, "Do you not see this facial hair?" But sure, whatever. Not you know, mm. no no judgment or anything like that. But I was like, "This is the only place this has ever happened is in Portland." That was kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, they're mostly made by men. This is where my like, my public health hat comes in, and I start looking upstream because then I'm like, "Well, who's funding these projects?" And like, typically, these projects are getting funded by venture capitalists, and they have to or like angel investors and they have to believe that your product is a good idea you know i think that there's a lot of people that are oh will look at a queer app and be like well how is this different than grinder and how is this different than whatever what have you um and so you have these apps that a lot of times are these labors of love because they're not getting a lot of big investors and funding and so 
Yeah, like I think about like that in a lot of ways determine what makes it to the market and what is seen as successful. And so there's not a lot of like other than like I feel like queer people are just people. And so there's a lot of needs that are human needs. But then the things that are specific to the queer community are seen as these quote unquote niche products. Right. You'll get a couple of games. My favorite game, Dream Daddy, where are like have very overtly queer context but they have to so like they have to be so successful for people to even consider doing clones of them you know otherwise there's just a subtle but natural aversion to centering queer people in your work and as a designer or as a developer because you don't interact or think about queer people on a regular basis even if you happen to be a queer person you know no, I, I'm thinking, you know, when you said that, uh, that just got me to thinking how it's like the same way with like black content or with mm-hmm. other, you know, non-white content. Like it has to be, it has the burden of having to be extremely successful in order for people to take it seriously as something that might just be mediocre on sure, another yeah. level, you know? Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of, in the meantime, there are a lot of people who are just kind of like carrying that torch. Like I think there's been a couple, like I've seen a couple of projects where they basically tried to make like an okay Cupid for queer people of color. And it doesn't get off the ground because like, there's not a lot of people sort of like investing in that. You have to have the resources to like, you hear about these stories about, (laughs) you hear these stories where it's like, yeah, you know, while I was creating this app, I was living on my parents' couch or in my basement. <laughs> and, like, you know, I was eating ramen every day. And I'm yeah. like, I know a lot of people that are doing that, that want to create apps that don't have a parent's basement to do that. And ramen every day is what they're eating because that's all they could afford for a minute, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think for a lot of people who experience multiple systems of oppression at once, there's a thing where you don't want to be too risky in the moves that you make because you're going after something that is, how do I put like, is like, it's very high risk or it's very rewarding. And so you want to do everything that you can to be seen as, I find it hard when people, like, I've never had the conversation of, I see a young me in you, you know, as a yeah. like, fat, queer, visibly black person, and sometimes visibly queer as well. Like, I haven't had that conversation with a mentor. And instead, the dynamic becomes, like, you're just right for me to, like, shape into something that's very similar to me, but not exactly like me. And I know that that's how, like, talking with other friends who have had those conversations, that's sometimes how the door gets open, right? It's like, an older white man will look at a younger white person, sometimes a man, sometimes not a man, and say, I relate to you. I'm going to give you this chance. And if you're a queer person, sometimes the idea is like, well, I don't want to make myself too queer or too visibly queer because then that'll alienate me from this person who is clearly not queer. And so I'm going to do myself to present myself in a respectable manner. And that means like sometimes taking out a like critical queer perspective on things that you are creating. And I don't blame folks for doing that because that's the choice we have to make under capitalism, but it does limit what gets to market. It does limit even just the features that we see on the things that get into market and who feels comfortable enough to raise their voice in those meetings. Yeah. 
No, that's oh my god, all that is so true. I mean, I, I when you mentioned that, it's it started uh, having me think about Arlen Hamilton. You know who that is? Mm-hmm. For those who are listening who might not be familiar, she created a venture capital firm called uh, Backstage yep. Capital. Mm-hmm. She was the yep. subject of season seven of the Startup Podcast. Actually, as we're recording this interview, is on the cover of October's Fast Company yeah. magazine. Company, yeah, yeah. Chris just tweeted that out. Like, it's amazing. And like a lot of the things that that I remember her just even talking about, you know, during startup, but even just as part of her story, has kind of been that thing about you know having to be a part of this community where she's visibly not like anyone mm-hmm. else. She's a woman. She's black. She's gay. Like being in all these different systems of oppression, I guess as you put it, but like these different intersections, and then having to kind of still be taken seriously in this yeah. field because of your merit, especially in this field where so much of what we do is supposed to be a meritocracy, but yet yeah. you get into it and you're like, this, this ain't got nothing to do with merit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have had mentors talk to me that was like, you just need to build up your technical skill because when you get in the door, people are going to want to work with you, but building up my technical skill takes a long time and like i have built up my technical skill for sure but having the the patience in the room to do that sometimes is not afforded to to folks experiencing multiple oppressions especially if that impacts them economically so i know a lot of queer designers that (laughs) like is that triangle in college you can either have good grades, a social life, or sleep, but you can't have all three. And I know a lot of queer designers. I know a lot of designers from oppressed backgrounds that have just decided to cut off their social life to keep up, keep their skill set up and get enough sleep. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I think it's just really hard to, I mean, it is really hard and that, but there are people that are doing that work. I don't want to like out anyone unless they're like out there publicly, but we've connected in back channels and they're doing that work and they're really excited to see me doing the work that I'm doing. But yeah, it's hard to be out there as a queer designer or as a black designer or any kind of like non quote unquote normative designer and get an idea that you may have that directly could be directly beneficial to your communities may get changed around a lot because folks are like, I don't see the value proposition in this. Right. So like, you know, I don't see the value proposition in creating something like creating an HIV education app. I just don't see it. It's not sexy to me. And it's like, cool. Well, now I have to figure out a way to do this or I have to abandon this project because I got to, you know, I don't want to be eating ramen forever, you know? I know like when I started doing revision path, one of the the first things I wanted to do was have like an LGBT month. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that we were showcasing what, you know, members of the LGBT community who are black designers are doing because that's part of who we are. I mean, that's been part of the black community since forever. You know, there were members of the LGBT community helping during the civil rights movement, even now during like our current kind of Mm -hmm. civil rights movement things that's happening with stuff in Ferguson, et cetera. But I didn't want to leave that out. I didn't think that was a fair thing. And I'll tell you, you know, for people that are listening, this month is always the hardest month to schedule largely because of some of the reasons that you mentioned about like you, you know, but they're not comfortable with putting that 
designation on themselves because they're trying to move up professionally. Like I've had people that I've, I'm not going to name any names, but I've had people that have been on the show that later have come, have, you know, come back to me and be like, yeah, can you take this part out where I said X, Y, Z, because, you know, I don't want that to affect me because I'm going up for this job or something yeah. like that. And I always respect that wish because we live in a capitalist society and I, I get it. I get it. But it is, it can be a hard month to kind of staff for because it's yeah. like, well, shit, I can't. I'm trying to, to showcase people and they don't want to necessarily be out there in that kind of way. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be difficult, but I wanted to be able to show that just to show, you know, just like we're showing that there are black designers out there. There's lesbian designers out there. There's gay designers, there's trans designers out there and they're doing the work, you know, and it's something that I wanted to have as a continuous part of revision path since starting it. And people have written that have been like, I don't know why you have to do that. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, we have a specific month, but like we've just had, We've always had gay designers and lesbian designers on the show, whether they were part of that month or not. You want queer designers. We're yeah. better. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> well, I mean, they give a different perspective. They give a perspective that may not be your own. They can. It's, it's sort of like how we're always talking about, you know, having diverse teams and stuff like that. It's the yeah. same thing. Yeah. They're opening you up to perspectives you didn't know about, cultural blind spots, et cetera, et cetera. Like it yeah. only adds to the richness of what you're creating. It totally does. I get branded. Like, branded. People think of me and they think black. And like, yeah, just like I get branded as like black and queer all the time. Uh -huh. And like, that's the part of my brand. Like, I think about that a lot. That's just part of my brand, right? Like, I'm going to be out about my blackness because I don't have a choice. But then I'm also going to be out about my queerness. And that may or like the, that may or may not impact the kind of opportunities that I receive, you know? And I think that there are merit-based things, but I definitely know <laughs> designers even from GA who we were at the same sort of technical skill set uh, level and their opportunities were way wider than mine were after we left. And to be fair, like I was the third person to get a, a job out of my boot camp so like i in the other the first person i think was queer the people who have remained who remained in their projected way of where they wanted to be are definitely not like they're not out as like as queer the project that's in my portfolio that's like my biggest one is working for a queer nonprofit and doing their entire website redesign mm -hmm. so it's like and if you look at my LinkedIn and my portfolio, things like that, like there's no way of hiding that I am queer. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't have a choice in that matter. Like, especially as I was switching careers, like, like the last few things that I worked on were like, like in multicultural centers or office of equity and inclusion. And then right before that was like the queer resource center at, at work at Portland state. And so there's, I don't have the option of like hiding my identity and i do wonder how that has impacted the kind of opportunities that people either pass toward to me or consider me for you know hmm. okay let's kind of i mean switch gears for a little bit before you mentioned you know going into ux and and research and design and stuff like that was something that it seems like you kind of fell into it a little bit yeah. because you said before you did work as a professional facilitator you've been an organizer how do you bring those former skills to your current work? 
Oh my god, all the time. <laughs> okay. So I think for me, as a facilitator, as someone who has been trained to listen, it's really, really helpful in doing sort of any kind of user research. And so, and that's where, that's where I kind of jam out about it is like, there are best practices that are transferable skills. So opening up spaces for people to talk and just listening, being able to mirror back what people say to you and use their language and their words. Any good facilitator does that and any good user researcher will do that because you want to empower people to feel like they are the experts in their experiences because they are. And so as a facilitator, especially working with a variety of different communities, it's sometimes hard to listen to people and not paraphrase and make them sound like they don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So when I've been in user research context, I have definitely brought in those skills of being like, culturally competent and being like, okay, you said this thing. I want to make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, and being able to investigate and probe and create spaces for people to show off their expertise and their conversation is really helpful. I think for me, the other thing is like learning how to work with different personality types has definitely been really helpful. And as a, as an organizer, you just need to learn how to work with a variety of different personality types because not everybody comes to a rally for the same reason or not everybody comes to an action for the same reason. And it's the same thing with using an app. Not everybody uses an app or a product for the same reason. And so knowing how to suss out what those reasons are and getting them to talk about those reasons has been really helpful and lastly, I think for me, because I moved into policy work fairly young out of my college career, I just tend to think in systems and thinking in systems has been very helpful as a researcher and as a designer and understanding what things would impact what features or what uh, needs will impact the overall system that I'm designing or shifting in one way or the other. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I know that you're kind of still fairly new into this whole research and, and design game, but where do you want to be in the future? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. I would love to continue to do civic tech. So I think there's one civic tech person that I really, really like, Anita Chang, She's a researcher that's doing a lot of civic design stuff and social impact stuff. She's kind of an icon to me. I'd love to work for someplace like 18F or IDEO.org or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So for me, that's like building up my design skill set and a lot of, I feel like, senior design level work to be able to be, I'd love to be a senior designer or even leading a design team doing, and hopefully I'm crossing my fingers that there'll be opportunities for me to lead a design team doing like international community-based design or international social impact design. That would be fantastic. I am not sure if I'm going, like the debate that I'm doing right now is like, do I want to get a master's? <laughs> 
in design. I think about this a lot because I think that like one can definitely learn a lot of things, but I just like to be in a realm. I like learning and I like doing it in a formalized way, quote unquote. And so I think about, should I get a master's? And if so, do I want to get it here in the United States? Maybe at the university that I'm working at? Or do I want to get outside and get outside perspectives? Because I definitely want, I do believe in design thinking. Um, and I believe that design thinking has the power to like really, really change the world and how we approach problems. And I want to bring that to sectors that I think need it, not necessarily need it uh, the most, but are in dire, definitely in dire need of it. You know, um, I think that a lot of organizations that are doing really great community work sort of approach things as like either a one or done or a continuing process and don't necessarily have like designers helping shape that process and doing these iterative models and letting people know it's okay to make mistakes as long as we're building off of it. You know, I feel like everyone would probably tell you if there's an overseas opportunity, like take it. Yeah. Cause I think you just probably would get a different perspective being in another country learning yeah. about this stuff than, than what you would learn about here in the States. Yeah, I think so too. I think about that a lot. It's funny, like this weekend, Amelie and I uh, just touched on it just very briefly about like, she was thinking about learning internationally. And I like had totally forgot that I had once contemplated like going to Europe and getting like a master's and like, masters in like post-colonial theory and looking at it as like looking at it from a design perspective i just i personally believe that we have a really wonderful opportunity to change our world and as designers we live at this beautiful intersection where not only can we vision it but we can execute it and like do it in a way that like communicates the ideas clearly I just think how powerful would it be for me to be a designer that is looking at things from a post-colonial lens or a, like an indigenizing lens or like a black perspective and bringing that not to like supplement, not to like supplant like the sort of traditional uh, design ways, which are mostly descended from like the Bauhaus traditions, but like, to really bring that in and just be like, hey, like there are these other perspectives and uh, other ways of understanding our world that might be helpful in the execution of this design, in this design of a service or an app or something like that. And I, I'd love to have that knowledge sort of always going on in the background at like a master's level, not necessarily ad hoc as I tend to do. Like I tend to like get dive very deep in like, indigenous or like indigenous design a lot in indigenous artifacts. So I'd like to study that in a formalized systematic way. That'd be cool. But yeah, and I don't know if I'll be able to have that opportunity or even if that opportunity will manifest itself. So I'm like, yeah, in five years, I definitely, I would definitely like to be still working for like social good organizations, doing design work and helping design like systems, services, and products that help people get the things that they need or the things that they want even. 
Well, five years is a long time from now. You never know. Mm-hmm. One last question. Yeah. This question comes from Paul. You know Paul. Paul uh, Anthony Webb. Yeah, I know who Paul is. <laughs> do, do you prefer pie or gummy bears? Oh my God! Why are you doing this to me, Paul? Podcast <laughs> <laughs> and everything. Oof. Gummy bears. Don't okay. don't kick me out. Don't kick me out of the of the group. I love gummy bears. Nothing wrong with Can that. I have a gummy bear pie. No, that sounds gross. Oh, but that's that would be interesting. That would, it would kind It'd of be like, like a big Jello shot. Yeah. <laughs> I like gummy bears a lot. Like Christy told me about like Christy Tillman told me about Albanese gummy bears yeah. changed my life. Like I think that changed a lot of people's lives that day. When she was, <laughs> when she mentioned that in our old Slack community, that was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Jordan, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So I have a website, that's my portfolio site. And like all designers, I'm just like, don't go to my portfolio site. But it's J-O-K-U-G-E dot com. Those are my for the first two consonants and vowels of my name because Jordan Green is a very common name. And then I'm on Twitter sometimes under Mr. Smaragdon. So that's M-R underscore S-M-A- R-A-G-D-I-N-E. And I'm sure it'll those will be all in the show notes. Yeah, they will yeah. be. And yeah, I think, you know, keep an eye out. I'm working on, I'll be featured in the AIGA Changemaker series. So that should be somewhere online. I'll be organizing Open Source and Feelings in March of 2019. So keep an eye out for Open Source and Feelings. And yeah, the Alphabet Alliance of Color website should be launching by the end of the year. So keep an eye out for the Alphabet Alliance of Color. And yeah, that's it. All right. Sounds good. Well, Jordan Green, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for sharing your perspective as someone who has changed careers into design. I think that's a perspective that we we don't have too much on the show. We usually will have people that have, you know, kind of started out fairly early but design is something that i think you know as you've illustrated you can come into from whatever field that you have especially if you've got a really strong passion for changing the world i mean doing this work that you're doing design for good design for social change whatever you want to kind of classify it i think being able to bring those skills to this and then helping out the community at large is uh is something that all designers should be striving towards whatever level of design acumen or knowledge we might have, there's a cause out there that could use your skills. So thank you for, you know, being someone that, that illustrates that. I just want to thank you again for coming on thank the show. You. I appreciate it. I know we're closing out, but I, it's really nice to hear you say that. I often like suffer a lot of imposter syndrome because I haven't been doing design since like 21 or 19. So it's really helpful to hear you say that. Cause I'm often just like, I don't know how I fit in into this ecosystem as well as like some other folks. I'm still just figuring that out. I think we're all still figuring it out. Even, even ones that have done it before, because this industry changes based on society. It changes based on technology. It changes based on a number of different factors. I mean, even the old guard has had to change, you know, based on things that are happening now. So I think because designers are in this unique perspective to 
really kind of solve problems, that means we always are going to be on the cusp of what's what's new and what's changing. So don't yeah. feel like because you haven't, you know, kind of put in X amount of years in the industry that you can't contribute. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm out, I mean, I'm out here. I'm contributing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but every once in a while, I'm like, am I, am I really? You're you're doing it. You're, we wouldn't have you on the show if I didn't feel like you were making an impact. So don't, don't feel that way. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jordan Green and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jordan and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? I mean, with an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook Design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook Design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you. Everyone from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies use Glitch. And they're ready to help each other out if they get stuck. So what are you waiting for? Visit them today at glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, And they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two, and it helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally, and it also helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for Design Podcasts. Even better, I'll read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.